0: In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, and respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa wabarakatuh. And welcome to the second installment or second lecture in our series on the afterlife
1: as a very quick recap of what we covered last time. The topic that we introduced is
0: the topic of the, sometimes it's referred to as the afterlife or the hereafter, and what we tried to do is to show that we need to spend time understanding this topic. This is not a topic that anyone should be taking lightly because it has implications on our daily lives, and it has implications on what we refer to, what we called our worldview. So, in terms of worldview, we said human beings have all human beings. This is universal. When we say something is universal, it means we find it in all human beings. Human beings have what we refer to as existential questions, questions that Human beings, as soon as they hit a certain level of maturity in the world, as soon as they start really understanding their place in the world, they start wondering about those things. And the more they gain maturity about this position in the world, the more these questions become important for them. And the first question is, where do I come from? The second question is, what am I doing here? And the third question is, where am I going? And we said when we study something like usul al-deen or aqa'id as we call them, or the system of beliefs, this is in part what a system of religion is supposed to provide answers to. The religious system that is presented from your creator, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is supposed to give you answers to those three questions. Human beings have been wired to have those questions. And if it's not religion, then you're going to try to find answers to them outside of religion, but everyone is stuck with those those questions. You may find answers to them in religion as you're supposed to, or you're going to be looking for answers here and there. And we believe that those answers that you're going to find outside of religion are always going to be lacking. They're never going to be full answers. There's always something problematic in the answer that you're going to get. And one of the main questions, as we said, was, where am I going? Once I am here, the answer to the first question, where did I come from? The short answer is Allah or Tawheed. Where do I come from is my origin. Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing while I'm here in this world? This is answered by the theme of Nubuwa, by the theme of prophethood, by the theme of religion. Why do human beings need a religion? Why do human beings need some sort of teaching and instruction points that come to them from outside of themselves and outside of their own faculties? Allah has given us abilities and faculties that allow us to explore the world. So why do I still need something beyond those faculties? My hearing and my sight and my taste and my smell and my touch, they allow me to explore the world, to investigate and to inquire and to discover the world. And I have reason and I have a conscience. Is that not enough to live a good life? Why do I still need religion on top of it? And this is addressed under the heading, under the topic of Nabuwa. And we spent a good 20, 25 lectures on that to answer those questions. And if there's interesting questions, please ask me and I'll get back to them. Otherwise, they're all online, so you can go back to the playlist. And then there's the third question, which is, where am I going? Okay, so the origin is from Allah. What am I doing here is religion, answers that question. I'm supposed to be told how I'm supposed to live my life, and where am I going? And the answer to where I'm going is the afterlife. The topic of the afterlife, the topic of alam al-akhirah, al-ma'ad, in the very scientific, technical uh, terminology, they refer to it as eschatology. The science or the the field of studying the ends of things. This is referred to as eschatology. So al-ma'ad or alam al-akhirah. In all those cases, what I'm trying to do is to see, so what happens next? I understand I've been created. Okay, fine. I agree with that and I'm supposed to be living my life in a certain way. Okay, that's good too. And then what? Then I die and then what? And the answer to this question is this whole field, this whole theme of the afterlife. So at a we can refer to it as a conceptual level. This is what we called a worldview. The manner in which you interpret the world, it's going to make a big difference whether you believe that there is something waiting for you after you die or not. If you think everything ends, then that's a worldview. That's one way of understanding the world. And it's going to mean that you're going to live your life in a certain way because you think there's nothing after death. And if you believe that it doesn't all end at the moment of death, that there there is more that happens after you pass away and you die, then in those cases, You're going to live your life in a different way and you're going to interpret your place in the world and the world in general in a different way. So the importance of studying this topic is two things. First, it has to do with your worldview. To have a complete worldview as a human being, you have to have a complete worldview. You have to have the answers to the three questions. That's one. So this is maybe conceptual. This is at the, they refer to it as the epistemological level. So this is at the level of knowledge and understanding how you fit into the world. Okay, that's important. But beyond that, as we said, at a very practical level, it's going to change the way you live your life. If someone truly believes that there's something that happens after they die, they cannot go on living their life in the same way as someone who is absolutely sure, or they live their life as though there is nothing that happens after you die. Everything stops existing, including you. For you, everything stops existing. There's nothing. So basically, there are no real repercussions. There are no consequences beyond the moment of death to anything you do. So, of course, they're going to live your life in a different way. In short, that's what we covered until now. We've just started with the topic. Now that this is established, and inshallah, the, the importance of the topic is clear with these two things in mind. If it truly means that I'm not going to live my life in the same way, knowing that there is something waiting for me after I die, then I need to understand what is it that's waiting for me after.
1: And so this is what we're going to be exploring over the next lectures. Before we jump into that topic,
0: there's one theme, one question that we have to resolve. If we don't resolve it, we're going to be stuck. Every time we talk about a topic related to the afterlife, there's something that's going to be missing. So we're going to resolve it right now in two or three lectures. And once it's resolved, we're done with that topic, then we can go into the questions related to what is the afterlife? What is death? And what happens after we die? And how does it work? And what type of world is it out there? Is it the same laws of science that we find in this world that work in the next world? Or is it completely different? For instance, the topic that we need to address, and we're going to start talking about it today, is the topic of the soul. In short, When we talk about a human being,
1: is the human being limited to this body, or is there more to the human being than this body?
0: If we resolve the question of the soul, then we don't need to keep coming back to it after. And we're going to need the answer to this question for every topic related to the afterlife. So we're going to start with it. The first thing we want to do, is to try to understand what does it mean when you look at a living organism. So the one relevant to us, the one that is of the greatest concern for us is the human being, but it could apply to a plant, it could apply to an animal, but it's less relevant to us. But when we look at a living entity, for example, a human being, what allows the human being to say that they are one? That they are the same creature over time. And we're going to explain why this is an issue. That's one. That's one thing, hopefully, that will be clear at the end of this lecture. The second thing is we want to understand what's the relationship between a human being and the soul, if we can show that there is a soul. What is the
1: relationship between the two? What's the place of the soul? What's the role of the soul? Am I a human being with a soul? Is it a
0: body and a a soul that have to be together to constitute a human being? How does it work? We want to understand the relationship between the human being and the soul. Those are the two big things we're trying to accomplish by the end of today.
1: We're going to try to make it quick. When you look at...
0: human being. Today a lot of you I think have studied enough science to know this and if you don't you will study it soon enough. You're going to be told that your body is made up of cells. It's made up of organs and those organs are made up of cells. If you start studying those cells, you see that depending on the type of cell it is, when a human being is first created in the womb, all the cells are the same. And then they start specializing and they become specific types of cells that turn into organs. Initially, it's the same cell. And that's why science is trying to find those cells because if they could, then they could turn them into anything. Those are the stem cells. Okay, those are the cells that become specialized and so they may become the cells that make up your bones or the cells that make up your muscles or the cells that make up your heart or lungs or your brain. Initially, they're the same cells, but then they change. Okay, depending on what they change into, science tells us that each type of cell has a certain lifespan. Some cells live a few days and they die. Some cells live a few weeks and they die. Some cells live a few months, some cells live a few years, and the cells that live the longest are your neurons, the cells that are in your mind, in your brain. Those they live the longest, in fact, before they used to think that those cells don't die. And if they die, it's impossible to replace them. But over the past few generations, scientists have found out that, no, the neurons also die, and it is possible to replace them. And that's a whole field called neurogenesis. And they're doing a lot of studies around that because nowadays in society, there is more and more people who lose their mind faculties, their brain faculties. So they need to do a lot more research on this to see what is making those cells die and is it possible to regenerate them
1: in any case. So every type of cell in your body is dying at a certain rate and new cells are being created to replace them. So if you take a human being at a certain point in time,
0: they say that on average, your full body from head to toe, if you look at the cells that make it up, if you look at a human being, every seven to 10 years, you will be completely brand new.
1: Take the example of a house. Let's say the house is made up of bricks. So you put all the bricks together,
0: you put your layout, you design it, your house is in place. And then every day you come and you replace one or two or three of the bricks of the house. Well, after a while, let's say a few years or a few months depending on how big the house is, every single brick in that house would have been replaced. So when you come later and you look at the house, would you say that this is the same house or is it a different house? If every single brick in that house has been replaced, it's yes and no. It's both, right? It looks like it's the same house. It's still in the same place. It's designed in the same way. But in truth,
1: it's not the same house because you've entirely replaced every piece of that house by something different. So in the case of the house, is it really a big problem that we ask ourselves,
0: is this the same house or not? It's not a problem. Does it doesn't really make any difference whether it's the same house or not? There was a house that was made of certain materials. We've replaced those materials. And now we have a brand new house that looks very much the
1: same as the old one. No issue. Where do we have an issue? We have an issue with the human being. If you're saying that the human being is
0: made up of cells, and between seven to 10 years, that human being has been entirely replaced by new
1: cells. All the cells that make up your body have been replaced. Are you still the same person or are you a different person? When
0: I look at you when you were one or two years old, and then I look at you again and say you're 15 now, and then when I look at you and you're 30, and then you're 45,
1: and you're 60, and you're 90, are you the same person or are you a different person? That's the big question. The short answer, so that we don't spend too
0: much time going through all the philosophical arguments related to this, The short
1: answer is if I were to ask you, do you feel like you're the same person as you were yesterday? Do you feel like you're
0: the same person that you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Or are you different? Do you remember the same things? Do you have something that holds all of you together even though you have all these different experiences? There's one of you who Existed yesterday. There's one of you who existed 10 years ago. You underwent completely different feelings, psychological states, and you were made up of completely
1: different cells. Are all these people the same person or are they different? And the reason why we're asking this question is that depending on how you answer, you need to
0: explain. If you think that you are the same person, then can you please explain to me how can you be the same person when every part that
1: makes you up has been changed? Or is there a part of you that is not changing?
0: Is there a part of you that's remaining there even though all the material parts, even though all the cells that make you up That make up your tissue your bones your muscles all of that has been replaced
1: but maybe there's something else that makes you who you are what do you answer what would the majority of human beings answer this question do they feel that they are the same
0: person even though their experiences are changing and even though this is happening over sometimes a very long period of time 20, 30, 50, 70, 90 years, But the majority of human beings say, yes, I am the same person. Yeah, my body is changing, but I'm still the same person.
1: Or would they say, no, it's not the same person? I think the obvious answer is, and I think we all feel it too, ourselves, a human being knows that they are the same person, which tells us that who you really are is not the body that makes you up.
0: Is not all the cells that make up your body in this way. Because these are always changing. And if you look far enough between one time and another, you're going to see that all of the cells have been changed. All of the cells have been replaced. And yet you still feel like you're the same person. You have the same will. You have the same character. You have the same memories. Sure, some of this can come and go. You may lose strength. You may have more will. Your character may change. You may be happy or sad. There are differences, but there's something underlying all
1: of this that's holding all of you together. And that thing is what we refer to as the soul. So this is the question that we've been trying to ask.
0: What gives the unity to a living organism? And here is where the discussion can get you know, very philosophical and you know, maybe not too relevant for us, but so what's the difference between say, a plant and an animal and a human being? And in short, it's really a matter of degree. There is a matter of degree when we talk about to what extent do they have in philosophy, they refer to this as nefs. There's something underlying that's holding all of this
1: together. And we're not going to get into the entire discussion related to that. The extent to which you're going to have a nefs or another word for it is a ruh.
0: and I'm not going to go into the distinction of it now. It's not relevant for us right away
1: the extent to which you have a Ruh is the extent to which you have a will
0: and an ability, a voluntary ability to use that will the less voluntary ability you have, the less of a Ruh you have the more of a voluntary ability you have, the more of a Ruh you have and this is the difference between you and say an animal an animal is a living entity and it unconsciously knows that it's the same as it was before and that it will be tomorrow. Just like you, especially complex mammals, for instance. But not to the same degree that you understand this and you can actually reflect on it as you are doing right now. An animal can't do that. This
1: is too high of an abstract thinking. This is a difference between you and an animal. Okay. you look at everything we said, we said that the majority of human beings should, in principle, agree with you. The problem is they don't. There's a whole bunch of thinkers who have decided that they are going
0: to reject the idea of a soul. Not just a soul. They're going to reject anything
1: that is not entirely materialist that is not entirely made up of matter the thinkers
0: in the 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th century there's a group of
1: philosophers and scholars who appeared they're called positivists and those
0: positivists that we're talking about there's a few kinds of them because there are some in sociology and there are some in science and, and philosophy. They say, we don't care what exists in the real world because it's not relevant to us. All we care about as thinkers is to see, can we know something
1: about it or not? And how do we know something about anything? They ask. And the answer they give is that if I can
0: know something about anything through one of my five senses then I can know
1: something about it if I can touch it or see it or feel it or smell it then I know I can
0: know something about it so I accept that it exists if I cannot know anything about it through one of my five senses not my reason one of my five senses, if I cannot know anything about it, then I cannot accept that it exists.
1: And quite frankly, I don't care that it exists, because it's irrelevant to me. I can never know. This is the positivist
0: thinking, or sometimes they call it neo-materialism, materialism and neo new materialism, because materialism has been around for thousands
1: of years. Those materialists, those thinkers who say that the only thing that exists is matter, they're going to, when they look at a human being, they say, everything that you see in the human being is this body. And that's
0: all there is. There cannot be, there is not anything beyond
1: this body. And so you ask them, so what about this feeling of entity? What about my
0: own perception and my own direct experience of the fact that I feel I am the same person I was yesterday and five years ago and ten years ago? What do I do with that? And in short, their answer, today there is no answer. None of those big thinkers and philosophers have any answer to this. Some who have started writing about this, they have basically said, and if you guys are interested, we can dedicate one lecture to this, to see what the big materialists, thinkers of today, the Richard Dawkins and the Sam Harrises and the Danielle Dennett's of the world, what they have said about this topic. And in short, especially people like Danielle Dennett, they have said that it's all an illusion. that you feel that you are the same person, that you feel that you have a will and that it's the same will that you had 10 years ago, that you have a unity, it's just an illusion. Your brain and your cells are tricking you. That doesn't exist. And this might be a convincing answer to some, to me it certainly is not.
1: There might be some people who consider that as a convincing answer, in any case. So, I think for the case of animals, we've answered, and the case of materialists. So let's now look at what we need from all of this. The two things that we really need. The first one
0: is that when you look at an entity, a complex living entity, like a human being,
1: you need something to hold all of its experience together okay that's one two the next step is going to be to clearly demonstrate that this entity can exist on its own that you are not only made up of the cells of your body and
0: that there is something in you that is beyond your body that can
1: exist Okay. Depending on your belief, depending on what you think about those two items, those two elements, even if you believe in an afterlife, if those, one of those two things is not correct, you're going to go in a completely different direction. Your idea of what the afterlife is, is going to change entirely. If you think that those two things are in place, that you have a soul, that you have a non-material
0: component to your body, and that it can live on its own, then the rest of the details will fall in place and we'll get to that. But if one of those two is missing, then your understanding of the afterlife, what happens after you die is going to be incomplete. It's going to go in a completely different direction.
1: So the conclusions that we need from all of this, without going into the rest of the details. One, that there's a soul that needs to exist. Two, that that soul can exist on its own. Here there is a little bit of a distinction if we wanted to go into a little bit of details. When you look at the things in the world, they are not all of the same type there are things that can exist by themselves and there are things that can only exist through other things if you take if you take the color black or blue does blue exist in the world no there is no blueness just on its own, just like that, just blackness
0: or blueness. That doesn't exist. We're talking about black here as a a color, maybe it's not a good color to use. I'm going to say it's a void. Let's take any other color, like red or blue or green. Does it exist on its own? No. It always needs something to allow it to exist. You need a ball, you need a door, you need a wall, you need something That you can describe as blue or green or red. Anger, fear, does it exist in itself? Like you'd say this is anger, this is fear? No. In itself it doesn't
1: exist. It needs something else to allow it to exist. This is in philosophy, they call these accidents. So what can exist in itself The things that can exist in themselves, they call them an essence. A jawar. Something that can exist by itself. Usually,
0: depending on the type of existence, like material existence, when they exist, they need a lot of alam. They need a size, they need a color, they need a... And then when
1: those things are in place, the material entity can exist. So you, you are an essence. Your body is an
0: essence. Matter can exist, but it needs a whole lot of accidents. It needs the qualifiers. It needs the color. It needs the size. It needs the number. Right? The quantity, quality, so on and so forth. The soul is the and a type of entity that is an essence.
1: It's not an accident. It can exist on by itself on its own. That's two.
0: So the first thing we said about the soul, that it needs to exist. One of the best proofs to show that it exists is that you feel you are one. You feel like you are one unit. Despite the changes, despite the progress of time, despite everything that happens to you, the different experiences, 20 years ago, 20 years into the future, you're still the same. But holding all of this together
1: is a soul. Two, the soul can exist on by itself on its own,
0: independently. If not, then you're stuck having to say the soul is also material. And then you fall into the same problem of, okay, so what allows the soul to feel that it's one unit? If it's material, you're always going to be stuck with the fact that it's always changing. So you need something that is non-material, something that is non-changing, that allows you to feel that you are one unit, that you are one. Despite the changes, there's something that's remaining the same. The something that remains the same is the soul. So it exists, it exists on its own by itself and it can exist separately from the body and it can be an
1: essence. Now, what's the relationship between you and the soul? When we say there's a human being, for sure we all know that there's a body. That's
0: the part that we all encounter in this world. And then we just said
1: there's also a soul. So, what's the relationship? You might think it's, for instance, two things that go together. For example, You can take for any of you who have studied a bit of chemistry. It's like a chemical compound.
0: A chemical substance. You take H2O. You take hydrogen and oxygen and you put them together and
1: you have water. A molecule of water. Okay. What if So you took one thing, which is hydrogen. You take something else, which is oxygen,
0: and the end result is a third thing. It's not hydrogen or oxygen, it's a third type of thing, which is water. This is a very special kind of relationship. If I take rice, and I take more rice than I put to it, you don't get something different, right? If I take rice and I take corn and I put them together, I don't get something a third different thing. I just get rice and corn. In this case, when I take hydrogen and oxygen, and I put them together in a certain way, I get a molecule of water. It's a third type of thing. So the human being could be thought of as that third thing. You took the body and you took the soul and you put them together and you got a
1: human being. That's kind of what we've been saying until now. The part we need to make sure that you don't think that,
0: you don't fall into this mistake, is the relationship between you and the soul, and you and the body, is not like the relationship
1: of water to the H2O. If you take away the hydrogen, you no longer have water.
0: If you take the oxygen and you keep the hydrogen, you no longer have water. You need both to make up water. Is this the type of relationship you have with the soul?
1: And the short answer, once again, so that we don't spend too much time on this. The short answer is, you are the soul. Point blank. There is not a soul and a body that together make up you. It's not like that. You, when you say I, you are only the soul. When you came into this world, you were given a body
0: that behaves in a certain way, that has its own rules and laws that guide it. And you go through life through all the laws that have to do with this body that you were given. And at the end of this life, this
1: body is taken back and your soul continues on its journey. Who continues on this journey? You continue on your journey. Not your soul as though your soul is something else.
0: You are nothing but your soul. And you were given a body to exist in this world because this world is material and you need a material way of dealing with it. You need an instrument. You need a tool to be able to
1: use your soul in this world, and that tool is your body. Okay? Hopefully, until now, it's all clear. The point we want to finish with,
0: so that we we don't spend too much time on the rest, and maybe the the other points we can leave them to later.
1: Maybe there is a way to understand this from the Qur'an. There's a couple of interesting verses in Surah 32, Surah Sajdah. There's a couple of
0: verses. We'll read them together. See what you understand from them, and then we'll end with this. The Qur'an says about some people, and they say, when we have been lost, or we, when we've disappeared in the dust or in the earth, shall we indeed be created anew?" So these bodies of ours, when they've completely decomposed, I've been dead for, you know, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, my body has completely decomposed. So they're objecting to the Prophet. When we have been lost and disappeared in the dust, shall we indeed be created anew? And the Quran answers, rather, they disbelieve in the encounter with their Lord. Okay. Now here's the, the part I want you to think about. Then the Quran continues with the next verse. It says, "Say, the angel of death put in charge of you will duly take you back. then your Lord shall be returned. Then to your Lord you shall be returned." The part that I want you to concentrate on is when the verse says, "The angel of death that has
1: been made in charge of you shall take you back." What is the angel of death taking back? Is it taking back your body? What is, take, what is it taking back? In Arabic, it says, قُلْ يَتَوَفَّاكُمْ
0: or wafat, tawafi, is taking something back completely. "tawfi." So you take back something that you own, you take it back completely. You can take, take it back in part, or you can take something back completely. I put money with you, I take all of it back. That's the literal meaning of the word. So that's the wafat. So when the Quran uses that term, it says, يَتَوَفَّاكُمْ مَلَكُ الموت, The melek, the angel
1: of death, is taking you back completely. What is it taking back? Your body? No. Yet, it's taking you back completely. So all of you, is being taken back by the angel of death so what is all of you it's your soul so when the quran says at the moment of death which is
0: encounter which is an answer to their objection what did they say their main objection was when we have been lost in the earth when we've decomposed, how are, we, how, how are we going to be created in you? When I have completely decomposed, the Quran is telling them you haven't decomposed. You are not your body. Your body has decomposed, but the angel of death has taken you back completely. Who cares what happens to your body? Whether it decomposes or not has nothing to do with where you're going, which is to meet your Lord. So with this in mind, we read the the verses again, and they say, when we have been lost in the earth, shall we be indeed created anew? How are we going to be created again in the afterlife? And rather, they disbelieve in the encounter with their Lord, say the angel of death put in charge of you will duly take you back, then to your Lord shall you be returned. So inshallah with this, the main points related to the, what the soul is and how it holds us together how it exists and it holds us together and what its relationship is to us which in short we said it is us it's not that we have a relationship with the soul we are the soul and the body needs to be explained not the soul then with this inshallah we have covered kind of the first half of what we wanted to cover with regards to the soul So the next topic, inshallah, what we're gonna talk about is to prove that the soul needs to be immaterial. It cannot be material. We're gonna spend a little bit more time on
1: that. A few quick remarks about this topic, and then we can completely open it up for any other
0: discussions or concerns or questions. The first, Uh, remark having to do with this topic is that if you go back to the works of Islamic theology now the classic works unfortunately this topic of the existence of the soul, of the soul being immaterial it needs an update and the reason is because this is one of the areas where those who You know, want to defend atheism or want to question religious thought. This is one of the easy targets. You need to show me something that is non-material. You need to prove that it exists first, because without that, there is no afterlife. And so, let's not even waste time talking about any of those topics. So, it's a very big topic, and there is a a lot of work being done by those that are referred to as the neo-materialists the new materialists who are using science, they're using neuropsychology, they're using this whole field of you know, brain sciences to show that you are nothing but everything happening in your brain. You are nothing but the result of the chemical reactions happening in your brain. Okay, there's a lot of work taking place there. And this is perhaps a gap. If you go back to our works right now, they're not keeping up to date with all of this. This is moving a lot faster where they're talking about your, your conscious experience, can it be explained with your neurology or not? So you, you need to delve deeper into the discussion with them to see what are they claiming and how do we answer that. Okay, so that's one area. For those of you who are interested in doing research and thinking and reading about those topics, that's definitely an area. And we have some names here, uh, you know, and I mentioned some of them. Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, others. Sam Harris, for those of you, I don't know if you know him or not, Sam Harris is one of the four biggest voices of atheism in the world. When he was doing his PhD thesis, he was still a grad student, and his field, his PhD field, is neuroscience. So he spends a lot of time studying psychology, parapsychology, and things like that. And in one of his works, which is The End of Faith, that's the book that he released while doing his grad studies. And the end of faith, he opened the door to saying, we cannot just dismiss all parapsychological experience. We cannot just dismiss it. The problem is this is one of the quickest areas to prove that there is more than just your brain, the material brain, the parapsychology, the stuff that happens beyond just the brain. Okay, and we talked a little bit about that in the past. Things like, for instance, um, I don't know, all types of like the plasticity of the brain so that the brain can reteach itself things and rewire itself because some people have tremendous traumatic experiences and they lose a limb or they get injured and there's a part of their brain that goes missing. For instance, can you still function? So if you are completely made up of your brain, you're nothing but your brain, and a part of you has disappeared, can you still function or not? So can your brain rewire itself without that piece, for instance, or not? That's a whole, that, that's neuroplasticity, for instance. Uh, there's a whole lot of studies, you know, linkage to, can, can the brain be used to engage with other brains without using you know, anything as a medium or not? This is a big field. So he was saying, although he is completely atheistic and supposed to be materialist, he was opening the door to parapsychology. And he was really, really criticized just for this part on his book by others, because they cannot open the door to anything beyond material explanations. And here he was, and he was at the beginning, in the beginning of his fame and his career, opening the door to that and he was saying, I can't just dismiss it, this is my field. And I know that this is, there's valid experiences here. There's real science going on and this cannot just all be explained away through material ways. You have to find real answers to this. And of course the others attacked him a lot. In any case, if you guys are interested in this topic, we can dedicate one one more lecture to it after the next one maybe, where we're gonna talk about the immateriality of the soul and we'll be done with the topic of the soul. But if you're interested, we can present to the other point of view that I think is very interesting Which is now that you know what we believe in regarding the soul and some of the reasons why we believe it Let's present to the other side. Let's tell you Let's go through some of the big names and what they are saying about the soul And as we said the bottom line is they basically say Does it doesn't exist and everything you think you feel and you experience is all an illusion Okay, so we can we can go through some of their works and, and just give some quotes to that so that you know you have the backing and you know the big names and the big works around that if you're interested. And that's all I'm gonna say for now. And inshallah, next time we're gonna cover the, the next topic, which we said has to do with the, the materiality of the soul. Muhammad So so completely open for questions, concerns, comments. Let's start with anything related to the topic. And then, yes. Uh, so for me, it's
2: um, it's conceivable that because my brain stores memories and it knows how to, how to process them and interpret them, because of this, I feel like I'm one person because I have these memories. Um, so what I'm trying to say is I, I can see how it could be an illusion. Um, so could we get into that? Could we talk about how to, you know, um, disprove this? or uh, what arguments we can make against that?
0: Um, so, which part would be the illusion?
2: Um, so, because I can remember the memories that I had maybe 10 years ago, and I remember them from my perspective, that means it was me that went through that, and therefore I am one person.
0: So, where's the illusion part? That's that's the part that I want to um, know. Why is this not reality? what allows you, what gives you permission to think, potentially, this is an illusion? Uh, well, because, um, because materially,
2: I'm not the same person. Okay. So, there has to be something linking, linking me to that time, either it's my soul, or it's an
0: illusion. So, my claim to you is, you can't say that it's an illusion. If this is an illusion, then everything's an illusion, you may not even exist you can't just openly and and like so cheaply dismiss all of this and just say, it might be an illusion, no, you need to show me how this could be an illusion, you have a direct experience of it, this is not intermediated, like there is nothing between you and that experience, right? And as soon as someone questions this type of experience, you need to kind of raise a, a red flag very quickly, If we start doubting our direct experience, we have a problem. We're not saying that every direct experience is 100% accurate, but the ones that are recognized universally, the ones that we all encounter and we live our entire lives based on. If someone comes and says, this is an illusion, you need to show me that it's an illusion. Prove to me that there is a possibility that this is an illusion. So basically what they want to say is, we can maybe find a way to inject a memory in your mind. Okay, well, I'm not against that. You might be able to artificially inject a memory in someone. It's still not an illusion. It doesn't prove that all of the other memories that I have are illusions. It just means that you could, if you wanted to, also add fake memories into it by using, you know, chemicals and electric uh, signals, impulses that you put into my brain. You might be able to generate a new memory it still doesn't explain all the other ones that I had. This one, okay, well, every single one of them was an illusion. So this is a question. So the claim on the other side is just too cheap. My explanation as someone who believes in a soul still stands. Right? So my your best explanation basically ruins your entire existence. It ruins all of your understanding of science, all of your understanding, because all of it is based on the illusion the fact that you have laws of science is all based on how you experience those things, how you experience those things, I'm not saying that, I still have a foundation on which I can build everything, my explanation is better than yours, there is something non-material that explains all of this to me, call it whatever you want, we're calling it the soul. But it doesn't matter what you call it, there's a part that is not explained by your material explanation and just saying, oh it's fake, it's not there, you think that it's there, it's not, well if this is not, then nothing is, this is the most direct, the I that you know yourself, that's the most direct experience a human being can have and if you start questioning that, we have a really serious issue. When Descartes started building his philosophy, in his time he said, I'm going to rebuild, he called it the edifice of knowledge, the building of knowledge. I'm going to rebuild it. I'm going to cause a revolution in thinking, in human thinking. And I'm going to start by doubting everything. I will assume that everything I know is wrong. It does not exist. Okay, so that's a good place to start. No one can say he's biased, he's subjective. Okay, he said, but Even when I do that, I cannot doubt that I exist. I feel my own existence. So that's a good starting point. No one can make me question that. And this is what's being questioned here. Everybody agreed with that. And then he went from there to, he added one layer. He's like, I'm thinking. His initial point was, I'm thinking about myself. Right? I think. Therefore, I am. Therefore, I exist. Because if I did not exist, I, maybe I want to doubt my existence because it's a complex abstract notion. Existence. Okay, but my thinking, I feel myself thinking right now, questioning right now. Do I exist really or not? Well, I'm thinking, so I must exist to think. So I think, therefore, I am. Corgito ergo sum, right? In Latin, the very famous sentence. Now we have people who want us to doubt this. and by the way, like this is in the 1600s. Ibn Sina uh, explained all of this uh, about seven, six hundred years ago beforehand. But anyways. Now what they're saying is you're going to doubt, not even you're going to doubt. the fact that you feel your own existence is an illusion. Now sorry, that's good. I'm not going to accept that. You need to show me that this is an illusion. You have to prove to me with an argument, with a valid argument, that this is an illusion. Otherwise, this is the most basic of all of my experience. If this is an illusion, then everything's an illusion.
3: Do they claim that or do they just say that anything we use as proof for ourselves? Or do they claim that everything is an illusion?
0: No, not your perception of the world, they say, is now an illusion but some have given different explanations, so for instance Richard Dawkins is going to try to bring it to the level of the gene so this is all one big conspiracy from your genes that make you up and make me up, so our genes are one it's kind of one organism that has decided to appear into all of these different entities, you and me and others so the gene is the mastermind, the gene is the mastermind, exactly so each one of them is trying to explain it at one level But ultimately, when it comes to this question, they need to explain, so what is it? Is there an I? They have to say, no, there is no you. There's something else, the more fundamental is still material, but it's the genes, all of them taken together. And then the genes came from something else, and the something else came from something else, which goes back all the way to the Big Bang.
3: But how does that make, like, what would they say to the individual responsibility and the individual, oh. like, uh, like if I hurt you, then you then I owe you something. Yes, what do they say to that? Like, can't I tell them no, I don't owe you anything, I own you the gene, you know? So, this
0: is a topic like I think we've talked about it a yeah, lot. We we, we actually this did. is in the ethics, and this is a new field in atheism, which is the ethics of atheism that and entire books are being written about this, can you live your life ethically as an atheist? If you do not believe in anything beyond your body and it, the more you read these types of works, the more you actually believe that you're nothing but your genes and your cells, why do you do good? What, what does good look like and what does bad look like and who's responsible? Because this leads to, we talked about it when we talked about the problem of evil in the world and determinism, and we said they believe in determinism, all of them. They say you have no choice. You think you have a choice, but you don't have a choice in anything you do. It's 100% predetermined by how you were made up chemically. You do not have any choice. So this is all related. And we said when we talked about that, that no matter how you spin this, There is no responsibility. There is no legal or moral responsibility in that system. You cannot be responsible. It's your genes who made you do this. It's your wiring that made you do it.
3: So they take away the free will part of it. Yeah,
0: but they're claiming now with the new theories they're trying to come up with, that you can still live a good life, a good life as in morally, do the right thing while believing all of this. So you kind of have to pretend for the common good of the best interest of everyone. We want to live and, and, and still try to be happy, because, because as we're going to see in a couple of lectures, that's another problem, that nothing has meaning if there's no afterlife. You just die and that's it. And that created huge schools of philosophy and huge schools of thought, where each one of them is trying to deal with the issue of despair, that you exist, all of your existence, for for those who are interested in these topics, a lot of philosophers have explained that your entire existence and everything you do is to try to beat the notion of death, you want to live, you want to survive beyond your death, human beings do not want to stop living, so if you take away religion, this is very easy, It's, it's instinctive, it's unconscious in religion, the moment you have that, then everything falls in place, and if you come to a religion like Islam, there's a whole system that you live through your kids, you live through your good actions, that you live through the good stuff that you leave behind, right? like the, 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 it adds to your instinct of eternal survival but if you remove all of that, then you fall into despair and this is all the different schools of thought that emerge, there's at least three big ones that emerged because of this and big thinkers and a lot of them you know, they ended up committing suicide and because they give up, it they lead a point to it leads them to a point where there is no meaning to anything, there is no point to living, if the ultimate end is death. But now they're trying to put the happy, positive spin on things that say, No, you can still live a happy, good life and be morally good and be ethically good while being an atheist and while being a materialist that's our claim my claim is nonsense you know so but you have to go into the arguments one by one to show where to exert
3: it's funny how they uh, they look down upon like the a big part of their argument against religion is that you just you just want to believe in religion so you could be happy so you could feel comfortable in the afterlife and then now they're having schools and stuff just to force the notion that
0: they can be you, happy this is wired like human beings need this <laughs> or they have a crisis
4: totally um, I just have a problem with that because like ceasing to exist is worse than punishment if you don't exist anymore as as a as an entity uh, cause I don't because I've heard that in the Quran before where it's like you get punished and then the highest level of punishment is ceasing to exist mm-hmm. so um uh, a lot of it too has to do with like what type of afterlife you, th- uh, you think of is changes your perspective on the world so let's say like you do good you'll come back like as a bird or something like that mm-hmm. rather than uh or you come back as something bad or something like that so uh like, like that notion i see like there's a lot of parallels with, with the real thing uh with, with the faking. let's say like like in is telling you to do good and whatever, and then let's say if you do, if you give charity, there's of this benefit in this world, and then there's this benefit in the after world. but Obviously, if you give charity, with that in mind, it's a different notion than when you give charity if you're just materialistic, world, right? But both of them have kind of the same notion, as in like, uh, it's better for me, but the better for you is two different things that's it it, it. so it's like like there's like parallels but at the same time it's not because both of them don't want to cease to exist Mm -hmm. but uh, religion obviously you know the goal is to um reap whatever you you in this world yeah but and then in this world sometimes uh it just doesn't make sense for even like an atheist to say you cease to exist because the world is is material makes more sense if let's say you're reincarnated in something else, if that's an argument. Uh but that obviously changes your view on why you give charity now because I wanna do that. And then if you believe that okay if I get it, the agenda is two different two different motives of doing it. But both of them are they they both have kind of this it's like parallel but it's like the fake mm-hmm. truth. And I don't know if there's um And then it's
0: like how you say, if you tell a good lie, you make it parallel to the truth, right? Yes. So, is it something like that in in general, or...? Okay, so there's one point here that if you guys are really interested in this topic, we can dedicate a few lectures to it because it's really a fascinating topic, but it's a little abstract. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it has to do with the whole field of knowledge, which is ethics or, or moral philosophy. And, you know, we could look at this from different points of view. We can present, for instance, the, the latest uh, materialist thought on this. Is it, what? How do they claim that it's possible to live a good life as an atheist and as a materialist? Let's present that. And then present the basic foundations of Islamic ethical theory. And I think just with that, you would see that that this is a beauty and the strength of the ethical system in Islam is that it meets the basic needs of the person who is uh, selfish, let's say, while meeting the higher needs too. And everything in our religion is based on this. If you can work up your way through the higher levels of maturity and spirituality and development, there's a a thing in there for you, and if you can't go there or you don't have the capacity, then that's fine, you have to meet the minimum which allows you to function and allows society to function, but you need to meet that minimum, and if that means you're only doing things for your own selfish reasons, that's fine too, and the the illusion, because you talked about illusion, the trick or the illusion is, sometimes I think there are those who say you are actually able to do something entirely and 100% without you in there that you are actually able to be 100% altruistic as though you do it 100% for the uh, by principle the truth is this is not realistic and even in the words of our Imams even at the highest levels, you see indications of this. Imam Ali salam. At some point, when he talks to Imam Al Hassan alayhi salam, and these days are the martyrdom of Imam Al Hassan, when he talks to him, he basically starts in a letter where he talks to Imam Al Hassan alayhi salam. He gives. He wants to give him advice. He begins by telling him, basically, I'm not someone who wants to bother with anyone else. But the problem is that I found you to be a part of me, right? Or I have found you to be me because you're my son, you are me. So how can I not give you my advice? Okay, so what is the Imam? There's something here that the Imam is saying that, you know, basically, if I didn't feel this duty towards you, I wouldn't bother. You know, I'm looking only at myself and this is all I should be worried about. There's no time to think about anyone. You need to be in a race to, you know, do the most good that you can for yourself in this world. The limited time you have, and that's it. But then he adds these beautiful lines. I found you to be a part of me. No, I found I have found you to be me, or all of me. So that you know, whatever harms you harms me, and whatever is good for you is good for me. So I have to talk to you, and I have to tell you. All these things, and then he goes on to start listing his advice. So this notion that you know it's it's been promoted, uh, and this is one of the biggest issues and the biggest weaknesses of systems like you know communism and socialism, where you're just supposed to work for the greater good. It's not realistic. Human beings are not wired that way. You need to be guaranteed of your self-interest, and if you are, you're willing to help others. So religion guarantees that for you right away. Whatever you're doing is going to help you. Okay, but is there a higher purpose too? So here's where you have to show your maturity, and maybe you're not only concentrating on your selfish reasons, but religion has guaranteed that for you. So you don't need to worry about it. Whatever you're doing, but this doesn't exist in other ethical systems. It's either this or that. You don't have this layering and then this causes problems individually, it causes problems socially, and, and so on and so forth, but it's a fascinating topic, and the other one, the other point you mentioned, I think it's, uh, it was my question to you guys to, to end with this, if there were no questions and not a discussion, I wanted to basically bring it back to the discussion we had last week, the, the, the topic we had about the relevance of the topic, And is this, do you feel at a practical level that understanding the topics that we've started to introduce now over two weeks, do you feel that it has a practical application or is it still very theoretical? I know I'm presenting it very theoretically, but I think I'm I'm betting on the fact that you know you are linking it practically to your lives. And this is the, that was the question. And now with what you said, to me, it's like you're already there but I need to reconfirm and hear from the others because basically you're telling me, well it depends on the type of afterlife you believe in because if you believe in reincarnation, then you're going to act maybe differently than if you believe in another type of afterlife or you don't believe in any afterlife at all right? so anyways, I was going to leave that with you guys and to kind of get any reaction to that question on the. I'm not talking about the, the theoretical importance of the topic but do you feel the, it's importance to the practical aspect of life? Do you feel the points that we tried to raise last time, which is you are really going to live your life differently based on your understanding of the afterlife? Is this point clear? Or, like, do you feel it? I don't want you to understand it theoretically. That's one thing.
3: Yeah, so, like, uh, I got it. Like, as you were saying, you, you explained it. You explained it theoretically. Yeah. And uh, so our job is to uh, translate it to our particle, li- to our practical, practical, to our practical life. Yes. So it's actually pretty hard because me, I got a glimpse of it like yeah. for like five seconds, <laughs> you know. But I think I like I, I I got it back, you know, right now when you mentioned it. And to me personally, how I look at it is when you mentioned how uh, it's like me right now is just me it's not my body my body is just uh, something i was given yeah when i came into this world and it will be taken i will be separated from it when azrail comes and takes me so it's just uh, it's just funny how whenever an accident happens in this world we say we say okay alhamdulillah nothing happened to you and they they mean your body really like thank god it happened by the car or thank God the glass broke and not you, and uh, it's funny how it, even even our bodies don't matter at that point because at the end of the day it's just our soul that's like we we the it's a bad thing how much we care about our body's health and uh, and not care like we care about that more than our the health of our soul. That's that's what I'm trying to get to. Like I know health is important and all that, but the proportions of the importance is not correct, and that's uh, and we, I like personally practically, I should correct that for myself. Is, is something I'm using that for. Beautiful,
4: yeah. 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 Sometimes that, that thought creates troubles for me when you when you when it's like looked at as kind of like two separate or two parallels or something like that. when it's at it like, uh, like it, if, if, you, if you're the soul is taking charge of this so we're in this medium of a life right so to, to operate in this life your soul is given this, this tool your body to operate in this medium like what you said earlier Um, so if I am to basically make the most out of it then I am to preserve this this tool to make sure it lasts or, or it, that I can get the most out of it or so on mm-hmm. so now it's one thing like it's it, rather than like my health, yes. my body and then my soul right so I'm assuming that's that's pretty much like that that's what creates confusion is when it's like two separate things one rather it's, it's yeah it's dualism thing work in is yes is, so we
0: don't want simple. it to be dualism yeah but to me so to make it a point, because to me, that I have to do that exactly like you said. So both points, uh, very, very good points. The problem is we are fixated in the material world. So that my job is to kind of uh, <laughs> destabilize you, take you out from there to see the other side. Now that we see the other side, we have to reestablish the balance. Okay, so now that you know that you are the soul and not the body, so a lot of people, can very quickly fall into, okay, so I become a monk and I only care about my soul. As you said, you need to balance it properly. So, you know, your balancing may not be exactly the same as mine. Okay, let's agree on that. But you need to balance it somehow, because as you said, you're still stuck with this body, and your soul can do nothing without this body. So if this body becomes sick, you don't take care of it, you make it die at 40 instead of 80 because you didn't take care of it, well you limited greatly what your soul can do because you did not take care of your body
1: no.
0: the higher level of this thinking and in philosophy there's a whole lot of work that happened there is that they are one but I don't want to go into specific theories with Mullah Sadra he wants to show that they are both one okay so your body becomes starts becoming a manifestation of your soul and your soul is a manifestation of your body they're not two completely different entities there is no dualism for so basically what he says is when you come into this world you have no real soul in the sense of you know something that can actually have a full will and and, and. no you have a potential soul and as your body develops then your soul can start becoming a soul and so as you grow up You know, like a child of one or two, doesn't have a soul of 12 or 15 or 30. And this is why, this is because the body is not fully developed, the brain is not fully developed, your neurons are... So the soul needs equipment to work with. And because that, the equipment is not there yet, you can't think properly, the neurons are not well established, you don't have a tool to work, so there is no soul. The soul is only as good as the equipment you give it, to bring it back to their one. Yes, they are one. In this world, they're one, until this world ends. And then this opens the whole discussion, so what happens after this world ends? But it's more of a theoretical discussion because we need to establish that there's a soul and it continues to live on. And the rest becomes, you know, we'll talk about it, but there's this that happens and then that happens and that happens. And no matter how it happens, so long as you keep the soul in place, the rest becomes kind of details because you always go back to the notion that you are not the body, which all the objections we're going to talk about are based on this assumption, you are not the body, you are the soul, and you will really see it in the afterlife, but in this life, yes, you are both of them, it makes no sense to talk about one without the other, but as you said, you need to balance. It's just,
3: I was saying is that, uh, like I totally agree with you man, like health is very important, it's just I'm saying that, my bal, me personally, is my balancing is off.
1: Yeah, no. Every human being.
3: Because yeah. because I like when something, because when something is happen happens to my body, I panic way more than when something happens to my soul. Like when I sin, I don't panic as much as when I get stitches or something. Like oh my god, I got stitches, you know. And I feel like that's wrong because my body is just there for the time being, but the soul is forever. So the balancing is off, but health is very important. As mm-hmm. you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Uh, uh, so it's actually very like it's just, it's uh, it's very with the topic. It's uh, uh, so when you were, when we were seeing how the corn and the uh, and the rice when they mix together, they're still rice and corn. Mm-hmm. But with each with H two O it becomes water something, a third, a third entity that's completely different than the first two that is combined. So how can we, how can, like, and you made the claim at the end that the the soul and the body is actually like the rice and the corn, not like the, or, yeah, you made, the claim was that it's the rice and the corn, so there's still two different things. And we can only say that about the rice and the corn because we know them, We know them like, uh, we know them to the detail. So we can say, no, that's that's corn because they're still yellow. It's still round, (laughs) you know. And the rice, we know it to the detail so we can still separate it. But how how can you prove that the body and the soul are still two different things if we don't know the soul to the detail yet? As in like, I don't know, like, we don't know. We don't have the tools to study that stuff. We just believe in it. Yeah, because of, lo- like because of logical reason.
1: Yeah,
0: so they say, the quick answer to this, they say that you can imagine yourself existing without your body. And so you know that the I, when you say I, just I, like when you refer to yourself when you say I, the self reference mm-hmm. the real psychological I.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, so you say that the real psychological I is the detail of the soul.
0: That's it. So there's like Ibn Sina, for instance, or others, they say like, you know, can you imagine yourself floating in the air without anything? Okay, now while you're floating, remove your body. Can you still imagine yourself floating? Yeah, yeah. okay, what's floating? Yeah. There's something, <laughs> it's still you. It's just there's no more body. You could imagine yourself existing without a body now what would that look like in this world, we don't think it's possible that's what we mean that, in this world we're stuck with two together none of them makes sense without the other but they are two different entities Uh, notionally they are two different entities, the body has its own rules and laws and principles because it's matter and then you have something else that makes you who you are which is you Yeah. Um, I have a
1: question about something you mentioned uh, a, few, a few minutes ago. Uh, it reminded me of a past question.
2: So um, sometimes when, when when you discuss morals with atheists and you ask them, like, where do morals come from? Why do we have a desire to do good? Um, they'll say, uh, as you mentioned, they'll say it's for the common good. Like, if I start stealing, I'm going to have to worry about my own money. Because yeah. stealing will be widespread. And same with killing. And yeah. uh, so, on. so is there an easy um, way to answer this?
0: Yeah, this is not really, so, like, this brings us into ethical theories. So, what's the foundation of your ethics? So, one ethical theory, for instance, is happiness. Just your personal happiness. Another uh, ethical theory is the collective happiness. So, the happiness of the greatest number. I'll give you an example. A lot of people say that democracies are built on collective happiness. So, you cannot make a system where everybody is happy but you can make a system where you maximize happiness. So the most people can be happy in that system. Okay. So the dilemma that this causes in ethics is, for instance, say that you have 100 people. How many do you need to have the most? Let's say 51. Let's do this mathematically. Let's say 51 people get together and agree that their happiness is in making the other 49 their slaves, does that make it ethical, according to this theory it does, because all that matters is the happiness of the most, well we have a little bit of the most, okay, so this is the kind of, and this is how you start assessing moral or ethical theories, you have to basically come up with all these scenarios, and so is it about happiness, is it individual happiness, What if the collective happiness causes the unhappiness of the individual? Is that still a good ethical theory or not? Uh, You have another theory that is, uh, you know, this is utilitarianism. You have another theory that's called the imperative, the categorical imperative of Kant, Immanuel Kant. He basically says that you have to do what is the right thing to do, just because, out of principle. Okay, it's a beautiful theory, but who does that? So there's a whole gradation on there are people who do the right thing out of convention. One, two, they do it or have it. Two, they do it out of, because they fear the law or they obey the law. That's another layer. Another layer is because, you know, it gives them great joy, for instance. But then there's a higher level which you do it because it's the right thing to do. Okay, so he's talking about that. He says it's always about that. Okay, but what if you take two really crucial, important values, principles, like for instance, not harming someone or saving someone and telling the truth. The truth is a universal, valid, you know, ethical principle. So do you lie and save someone's life? Or do you sacrifice a person's life because you tell the truth? Which one is more important? And so this is what Kant is struggling with. That's what he's writing about. He says, no, no, okay, so we have to establish things that those are kind of non-negotiable. Human life is non-negotiable. Red
3: lines.
0: Red lines. Okay, so to me, the interesting part, I mean, ethics is interesting in itself. But I'm nerdy that way. Everything's interesting. But beyond that, what's interesting is you see all of this thinking and then you come to religion and you see the easy system that has been given to you that has already taken care of all of this it tells you there are principles but the principles are entirely matching with your fitrah with the way you have been wired so that we're going to meet your happiness level you're going to do the right thing because it's the right thing and it's also because it's giving you happiness, and because when you're sacrificing, you're going to get reward for it, so you're going to willingly do it, help yourself and help others, so you will take out of your own money and give to others, you will sacrifice your life for something that is of a higher you know, value, okay, so I don't know, their concern or their Um, claim that you can still do the right thing just because it's going to preserve a certain moral order or social order to me is extremely incomplete the social order is important so I would say, you know, in the case of my religion I believe that social order is a very important principle that my religion establishes It it puts a lot of things in place so that you never live in chaos Islam does not like chaos it rejects anything that leads to chaos, okay, and that includes things like making sure there's unity, making sure there's like, if there are three people or two people, at least one of them is a leader, you don't want chaos, you don't want disorganization, everything needs to be clear, people need to know how to live, very important principles in Islam, so when you come to those Other theories, let's say this one, so it's all about ensuring that it doesn't lead into chaos, well, so basically, and and these are two different arguments by the way that you mentioned, because one of them is, is the common good, but the other one is self-interest, and I would argue that if you are truly atheistic, and you're truly materialistic, I would argue that you're only doing this out of self-interest because you fear. But what if you are in a situation where you don't need to fear? What if you have the means to protect yourself? You are a tyrant, and you have all the means of, you know, you can take whatever you want, however you want, you can take people, you can do whatever you want with them, you can take money, if people disobey you or don't like you, just get rid of them, you kill them, torture, punish. Imagine you were in that situation. So what's the moral theory that you need for that? What would that do? So Kant also tried to fix that, by the way. He said, he calls it, uh, you know, the, the universalization. So basically, if you take that, but this is all theoretical, because the majority of people are not good like Kant. You know, Kant is, is a Puritan Christian, okay? So he's like as conservative as they come, as as extremist as they come in his moral upbringing, okay? Like, And you see that in his ethical theory, even though it's all rational. He's basically saying, one way to know if something is good or not, because sometimes it's really difficult, is that, what would happen if every human being did that? Would it annihilate, for instance, human life? Yes, okay, so now you know that it's bad. Okay, you know that it's bad, but who's going to listen to you? When people have the power to lie or cheat or steal, especially with the thought of, I'm not going to get caught, which is, basically how all crime works. If you thought that you're going to get caught, you're not going to do it. But if you think you have enough of a chance of not getting caught, you're going to go ahead and do it. That's all crime. So the, the claim that you know you won't do it because of the greater good, that's not realistic for human beings. The principle is good. I believe in it. I think it's good. But you need something more fundamental that will meet the selfish needs of people the immediate needs of people because the majority of people are not going to go to that higher level and especially if times are tough you know all you need to do is start shaking the, the basics of human beings you know you don't you don't have electricity you don't have food you don't have water your kids are in danger you don't have security you know it's very quick that human beings go and uh, to a very different level of moral thinking and it becomes survival. And this is where you want to see okay, but I won't do it because it's the wrong thing to do. Is that the majority of people? Uh, they will say, that's the wrong thing to do, but they will say, so my survival is more important. You see it on Boxing Day at work. <laughs> you know, is it, is it a higher moral thing or?
3: <laughs> yeah. I have a question. So when philosophers uh, uh, come up with a philosophy or whatever, are they doing it as like to describe life? or are they doing it as a religion for people if they want to follow
0: it? Both, so this is the difference between, um, they call it a a descriptive discourse, so a description of what's happening, Mm -hmm. and you need to do that first, before I start coming up with my solutions to the world, or how I think people ought to live, which is the, the prescriptive, they call it, this is a prescriptive discourse, I need to come up with a descriptive discourse. I need to tell you what is out there. And so this is, you know, done. So both are done. And and some of them stay in only one.
4: Yeah.
0: And some of them have a theory on both. Some of them don't. But the big theories and ethics, I mean, there's not a million of them. There's like seven theories, six or seven Are they theories. all both? You, or no, like... Who's, who's all? Like philosophers? Yeah, like you said, no. there's,
3: big se- there's seven big theories. So are those theories both? like descriptive Yes. And yeah. The, well, descriptive in the sense that
0: you could look at any human being and say, this is why they're doing it. Yeah. So for instance, one, the theory of happiness, no matter what you say, they're going to say, yeah, but they're doing it because that maximizes their happiness. No matter what you present, they will say, I will show you how this maximizes their happiness.
3: And then you could follow that to yourself. You could say, I'm going to do the thing. That yes. Works.
0: And therefore, that's how the... It's like a, a law of the world that I have to follow that same law, everything I do is to maximize my happiness and I will agree with that, I'll say okay good, I agree with that, it's just my happiness and yours, you want to limit yours to this world, I'm going to extend mine too, and this is why I say you know, if you properly understand your religion, you see that all these theories have been covered in in Islam, we have the same big ideas, it's good of them that we're Good on them that they were able to identify those as important keys and principles, but we already have covered them here too.